Hi guys, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm Harry Stevens, and I'll be your host. Today, we're covering the Eastern Front from August 7th to August 20th. Not much else going on here, although I am taking suggestions for bonus episodes or context episodes or whatever you want to call them. Most of these will be made after I finish the main content, which will be a while yet. You've got to remember that this episode today takes us to late August, and Operation Barbarossa ends in early December. Anyway, these context episodes will cover interesting or important elements of the Eastern Front that I don't have time to cover in the main series, so I might talk about Hungarian forces in Operation Barbarossa, or go into detail about the evacuation of Soviet industry, that kind of thing. So if you have a specific thing you want to see me delve into, email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Otherwise, let's get started. Having mostly cleared their flanks last episode, Army Group North began their assault towards Leningrad. The main offensive would be split. The northern pincer would sweep through and attack Leningrad from the left. The southern pincer was itself split in two. One portion would strike north of Lake Illman towards Leningrad. The remainder would attack south of the lake and attempt to cut rail lines between Leningrad and Moscow. The remainder of Army Group North, elements of the 18th Army, would finish off Soviet forces in Estonia. Panzer Group 3 had been shifted from Army Group Center to North, but it would be well over a week until they arrived. Large-scale German assaults began on August 8th. The Northwestern Front was desperately short of tanks, with only 250 operational by early August, mostly light tanks. Despite this, determined Soviet resistance and poor conditions slowed the 41st Panzer Corps to a crawl. It took them three days to go 30 kilometers. Also by August 8th, the 26th Army Corps had reached the Baltic Sea, completely cutting off remaining Soviet forces in Estonia. The 26th then turned east to attack Soviet forces in Narva. The 42nd Corps stayed behind to finish off remnants of the Red Army in western Estonia. Just so we don't need to come back here, I'll skip ahead a little bit. By August 20th, the 26th Army Corps had captured Narva, and the 42nd had confined the Soviet 10th Rifle Corps in Tallinn, the Estonian capital. Prior to the beginning of this new German offensive, Soviet planners had predicted as much, and had organized their own attack. It called for large concentrations of Soviet troops to the south of the sector to encircle and strike the German 10th Army Corps south of Lake Ilmen, which would stall the whole German offensive. Soviet plans had been preempted by the German attack, however, particularly as German strikes north of Lake Ilmen had broken Soviet defenses, and were now rapidly approaching the city of Novgorod. All the same, the Soviet attack went ahead, albeit in a piecemeal form, on August 12th. The dangerously positioned 10th Army Corps was partially enveloped by the 14th, but it was not to last. Noticing the imminent danger, Lieb deployed two motorized divisions to aid the 10th Corps. These reinforcements quickly smashed Soviet infantry flat, reversing their gains. Returning to the two main pincers, Soviet resistance north of Lake Ilmen began to give out by August 12th. The 1st and 28th Army Corps ripped through Soviet troops, capturing Novgorod on the 16th. The 41st Panzer Corps began to make its way through Soviet forces to the north. By August 20th, the Panzers had enveloped Red Army forces in the Luga area on three sides. Aware of imminent danger, these forces began to withdraw as quickly as possible, hoping to avoid falling into yet another encirclement. As awkward and anticlimactic as it feels, we're going to leave the front here. So we'll see how it goes next week. In the center, there are two main things going on. 
One is Guderian's Panzer Group II turning south, applying pressure on Ukraine. The other sees Soviet forces attempting yet more counteroffensives against German troops in the Smolensk area. A top priority for the Stavka was maintaining the northern and southern flanks of the sector, which Stalin believed remained the primary German focus, despite the actual pivot in German strategy. Guderian's southward pivot was initially interpreted as an operation on the flank of the central sector, not a move towards Ukraine. Prior, the German destruction of the Red Army forces at Roslavl had torn open the hole in Timoshenko's southern flank, and the Stavka desperately needed it patched. Entrusted with this task was Georgi Zhukov. On August 6, Zhukov was given, quote, personal responsibility, unquote, for destroying German forces at Roslava and Yelna. The attack was intended to take place the next day, on August 7th, but poor conditions and the abysmal training of Zhukov's armies, not his fault, convinced the general to delay operations. On a side note, Joseph Stalin, who was increasingly micromanaging things, made himself supreme high commander of all Soviet forces on August 8th. As Zhukov was taking time to ready his forces, Guderian's panzers were on the move. Albeit, this was a partial and slow move, as a lot of his units were still tied up holding the front line. By August 8th, Guderian, with aid from the newly arrived 2nd Army, began their attack. Early morning on the 8th, the 24th Panzer Corps struck between the 28th and 45th Rifle Corps. At the same time, the 47th Panzer Corps struck south of Roslavl. On the right flank, the 2nd Army began later than planned. The 47th Panzer faced spirited resistance from the 13th Army for almost a week. But the 13th, which had already been mutilated, was practically non-existent by the time it disengaged. The 45th Rifle Corps, under the 13th Army, positioned between the 24th and 47th Panzer Corps, was largely enveloped on the 9th and would be destroyed on the 12th. Once the infantry of the 2nd Army got moving, it quickly bypassed the thinly spread resistance. By August 14th, they had surrounded much of the 63rd and 67th Rifle Corps north of Gamel. Ferocious Soviet resistance within the pocket, 4th von Weichs, the commander of the 2nd Army, to commit almost all of its forces to hold the perimeter. By August 18th, the last Red Army troops in the pocket had either escaped or surrendered. Once fully liquidated, the Gamel pocket created about 80,000 prisoners, plus many tens of thousands more dead or wounded. By this point, Soviet resistance in the area had been nearly exhausted, and Guderian's advance was opening a yawning gap in Red Army lines. To patch this, the Stavka created the Bryansk Front, positioned between the Central and Reserve Fronts. General Aramenko, known for his aggression, was given command. The Bryansk Front included the 13th and 50th Armies. Returning to Guderian's forces, on August 15th, the OKH, the Army High Command, ordered the 24th Panzer Corps to continue the advance. Guderian himself felt that they needed time to rest and refit, but was overruled. By August 16th, the 3rd Panzer Division had severed an important rail line at McGlynn. Soviet forces in the area had either been destroyed or were in a, a hurry withdrawal. By the 20th, Gamal had been captured. At this point, Guderian's advances had nearly carried him into northern Ukraine, and whatever remained of the southern front was in danger of encirclement and complete destruction. Meanwhile, the western and reserve fronts had kept up their attacks. On August 8th, the 19th and 30th armies achieved limited successes in their attacks northeast and southeast of Smolensk, but were ultimately repulsed. They did manage to give the 5th Army Corps a bloody nose, and proved yet again that the Red Army is far from done. 
even though they took little ground. These attacks were a tremendous source of concern for Franz Halder, and his diary entry on August 11th makes that clear. It also includes some very important points on Germany's fundamental disadvantages and situation. Halder writes that, quote, We have underestimated the Russian colossus. At the outset of the war, we reckoned with about 200 divisions. Now, we have already counted 360. These divisions are indeed not armed and equipped according to our standards, and their tactical leadership is often poor. But they are there. And if we smash a dozen of them, the Russians simply put up another dozen. The time factor favors them, as they are near their resources, while we are moving further and further away from ours. I don't think I need to add anything onto that. Shortly after Guderian's panzers began their attack on August 8th, the Stavko ordered the Western and Reserve Fronts to begin their own renewed offensives. The first efforts at this, on August 11th, proved unsuccessful, and Timoshenko wrote up an analysis. He concluded that, I quote, The enemy is exhausted and lacks reserves in many sectors, but also that our forces, which suffer heavy losses in men and weapons, are severely weakened and cannot conduct operations with decisive aims. Timoshenko concluded that Army Group Center may redirect forces from along Smolensk to southern attacks near Yelna. As a result, he recommended large-scale attacks across the western and reserve fronts to destroy and defeat major German formations. Clearly, Timoshenko and the Red Army were in a desperate state. Why else would he, in the same paragraph, report that Soviet forces were too weak for decisive actions, but then conclude that the best solution was a series of major attacks, in other words, decisive actions. It seems that Timoshenko was relying on the idea that Army Group Center had already weakened its center force enough for a Soviet effort to be successful, but even still, it displays the desperation that they were working with. This was the best of terrible choices. Anyway, Timoshenko specifically recommended that the 19th, 20th, 29th, and 30th armies in the Western Front should attack, hoping first to take back Dukovchina, about 50 kilometers northeast of Smolensk, and then from there, retake Smolensk itself. If that were successful, the Western Front, in conjunction with the Reserve Front, could launch combined operations to take back Roslavl. Between the 14th and 15th of August, the Stavka and Front commanders planned this offensive. Cooperation between Zhukov and Timoshenko was inadequate due to the chaotic situation. However, with planning complete, the offensive was scheduled to begin on August 17th. The plan called for the reserve front on the left flank to encircle and destroy enemy forces around Yelnya. The western front would do the same at Dukovchina, while the 27th Army on the northwestern front would help secure the right flank of operations. The offensive did in fact begin on August 17th. Careful husbandry of forces and weapons created powerful local superiority for selected Red Army shock groups. Their initial attack saw some success, although incurring heavy casualties. Several divisions from Konev's 19th Army achieved a major tactical victory on the first day. But the 30th Army, under Komenko, experienced far more modest gains. Together, the two were supposed to destroy German forces at Dukovchina, but the 30th was far behind. Forces on the right flank of the Western Front made no appreciable gains, while the reserve front on the left only advanced modestly. When the offensive started up again the morning of the 18th, the 19th Army knew that German forces in front of them were light. Konev assumed that they were withdrawing to more defensible positions, so he, he ordered his forces into pursuit. 
The 19th made meaningful progress, while the 30th and other forces were unable to overcome a stubborn German defense. On the German side, Hitler and the OKH were becoming increasingly worried about the threat to Army Group Center's northern flank. They dispatched elements of the 3rd Panzer Group to secure the situation. Given the disastrous two months the Red Army had been through, Timoshenko, Lestavka, and Stalin were more than happy about the successes of the Western and Reserve Fronts, particularly the 19th Army. By now, the 19th Army had torn a hole in the defenses of the German 9th Army and placed itself firmly in forward German positions. August 19th saw Soviet forces expand on their gains, as many German divisions reached a breaking point. Worse, the diversion of the Panzer groups from the center of Army Group Center had left that area seriously vulnerable. The 9th Army had only the heavily battered and outmatched 900th Motorized Brigade as a sort of motorized-slash-tank reserve. In the view of many German officers, both in the field and in high command, German forces desperately needed to retake the initiative and attack before relentless Soviet assaults broke through and turned the danger into a disaster. This German counterattack will begin on August 20th, and to maintain a sense of continuity and kind of self-contained chapters, we're going to leave the front here and pick it up next episode. For right now, we're going to look at Army Group South. In the South, last episode had seen German forces create the Uman Pocket, netting them over 100,000 POWs. Those Soviet forces that had escaped were in a disorganized state, scattered around southern Ukraine near the Black Sea. Hitler apparently was not aware of this. In an August 7th meeting with Romanian dictator Ion Antonescu, he seemed to be under the impression that Army Group South's primary strategic goal, the destruction of Soviet forces west of the Dnieper, had been achieved. This was premature. He even awarded Antonescu the Knight's Cross, Germany's highest military award. And while it was premature to declare the left bank of the Dnieper clear of Soviet resistance, the situation was certainly not good for those Soviet forces that remained. Following the catastrophe of Uman, resistance west of the river was no longer viable. Those that survived, mostly the remnants of the 9th and 18th armies, could be broken into three categories. Some were instructed to put up a strong defense in the port city of Odessa, where they would hopefully be able to hold out until they were relieved. Another group held out in Nikolev, Mikolev today. A third group managed to escape encirclement and establish defenses on the southern end of the Dnieper, north of Crimea. Responsibility for liquidating Soviet forces in Odessa was given to the Romanian Fourth Army, as Odessa was to be under Romanian jurisdiction in the post-war settlement. Meanwhile, German panzer forces were directed to regroup and then continue the advance up to the Dnieper. Part of this involved the elimination of Soviet forces in Nikolev. And with the full weight of German armor and infantry, Red Army stragglers at Nikolev were crushed by August 16th, resulting in some 50,000 prisoners taken. By the end of August 19th, the 3rd, 14th, and 48th Panzer Corps had reached their positions along the Tineper, meeting little opposition. Due to exhaustion and a significant Soviet buildup on the other side of the river, they had to pause and wait for resupply and for infantry to catch up. The front line was now 350 kilometers from the nearest railhead, making this quite a powerful task. Near Kiev, action had been sparse. The infantry of the German 6th Army managed to push Soviet forces behind the Dnieper, but without tanks, couldn't take the city. We'll take this as a stopping point for the action on the ground.
In the air, the Luftwaffe saw several major victories and some problems. The forces of Flieger Corps IV played a major role in destroying Soviet efforts to relieve Uman and maintain the broad air superiority throughout. They continued to trade favorably with the Red Air Force. Throughout July, German pilots were shooting down two to three Soviet planes for every plane they lost. But the constant replenishment of the Red Air Force meant that numbers began to shift back towards the Soviets. And at the beginning of August, Luftfloat IV and their Soviet equivalent were roughly equal in number. In Army Group Center, remaining Luftwaffe strength had been shifted to the southern flank as Guderian's Panzer swung south. Soviet air support in the area had been butchered while aiding the counteroffensives, so German air power was a major tool in battering the Central Front and closing the pocket at Gomel. However, this diversion of strength left the northern flank of Army Group Center without air support, and growing Soviet power in the region took advantage of this by attempting to wrestle control of the skies. Reportedly, they were able to do this on a major scale, with the 9th Army reporting Soviet air superiority across their entire area of operations on August 11th. Once they had gained air superiority, Soviet bombers harried German forces. Luftwaffe in the area noticed that these new Soviet units were far more clever than the Soviet flyers had been in June or even July. They operated in smaller, more flexible groups, performed evasive maneuvers, and quickly left the area once they had finished their missions. In Army Group North, Luftfloat One played a major role in the offensive towards Leningrad, helping relieve overstretched German forces. This despite a strenuous effort by the VVS in the area. Such efforts, while brave, regularly resulted in heavy losses. Both on the northern flank of Army Group Center, as well as Army Group North, increased Soviet activity had the secondary effect of forcing the Luftwaffe to reduce their efforts at destroying Soviet infrastructure to target air bases. Probably the most significant event in the air for this episode, and from a symbolic standpoint, was the bombing of Berlin. The capital of the Third Reich had been bombed before. The British had done it in August of 1940, and some attribute this bombing to Hitler's decision to target British cities during the Battle of Britain. But for the Soviets to do it was quite different. August 8th saw the first Soviet air raid on Berlin. A group of 13 DB-3 bombers taking off from western Estonia neared the city near midnight. German and Soviet accounts, as you might expect, differ on what actually happened. German accounts say only one bomber appeared over the city itself and was shot down. Soviet reports say six bombers dropped bombs in the city, and the destroyed plane was the result of a crash landing, not German anti-aircraft fire. Regardless, the raid did little damage, but was an enormous source of morale for the Red Air Force and the USSR as a whole. In international news, the Atlantic Charter was issued on August 14th, created by negotiations between the British Empire and the United States, and announced by FDR and Churchill, it laid out American and British goals for the end of the war. Now, this did not mark America's entrance into the war, but the Charter directly and officially signaled U.S. support for Britain in the struggle. The Charter calls for a post-war order founded on ideas of self-determination, free trade, cooperation, democracy, and disarmament. For the Axis powers, particularly Germany and Japan, this was a further indication that America would soon join the war and left no doubt about whose side they would be on. Finally, on a strategic dimension, Kiev, the Kiev region, was in imminent danger. First, the disaster at Uman had resulted in the loss of any footholds west of the Dnieper. For Army Group South, the focus shifted to crossing the river itself and then into the rest of Ukraine. 
and the massive advance of Army Group Center had created a huge salient centered around Kiev. If Panzer Group III could swing southwest and cut off the salient, it would absolutely cripple the Red Army and bypass the Dnieper defenses. Beyond the Dnieper, there are a few regional defenses, and the Wehrmacht could seize the resource-rich and industrial regions of eastern Ukraine. Fear Directive 34 and Supplement 34A represented a compromise between Hitler's position and that of high command, most prominently Franz Halder. Hitler assigned no particular importance to Moscow and was especially dissuaded by the strength of Soviet resistance in the center. Rather, the industry, coal, steel, and grain of Ukraine was a far more alluring prize, saying nothing of the oil that lay in the nearby Caucasus. On the other hand, Halder and his followers held up Moscow as the objective. To them, everything else was a distraction. Based on this, Hitler would have liked to dedicate increased panzer forces to Ukraine on a permanent basis to complete his conquest. Halder was eager to return panzer groups 2 and 3 to the center and make the advance to Moscow. So Fuhrer Directive 34 blended these. Once the Kiev salient had been demolished, Guderian's panzers were returned to Army Group Center, leaving the infantry and panzer group 1 to complete their goals. The Red Army was not unaware of the threat. As early as July 29th, Georgi Zhukov had advised Stalin that the most vulnerable part of the front was the southern flank of the central sector, due to its weakness and to the positioning of German forces in the Army Group Center, East Soviet forces in the southwestern front. Stalin dismissed these concerns, or at least he dismissed their severity and the need for immediate attention. Stalin fervently believed that Moscow was the main German target. Pre-war, Stalin had believed that Ukraine would be the primary target, and had forced the general staff to alter plans to reflect this. In that sense, he bears a lot of the responsibility for the mismatch between Army Group Center and the Western Front. So maybe he was overcorrecting for this. Maybe he was just worried about himself, or maybe he's prized Moscow's political importance over Ukraine's economic importance. In any case, when Zhukov came to him with these arguments, Stalin continued to insist that the Germans would not deviate from Moscow and that the newly formed Central Front would be able to protect the northern flank of the Southwestern Front. Stalin also took issue with Zhukov's suggestion to withdraw the Southwestern Front to behind the Dnieper, which would mean giving up Kiev. Perhaps saying Stalin took issue with it is an understatement. Stalin reportedly cursed Zhukov out, accusing him of speaking rubbish and being insane. Zhukov never wanted to take an insult lying down, told Stalin that if he really thought that, then he should relieve him of his position as chief of the general staff. Stalin took him up on that, and Zhukov was reassigned to lead the reserve front. In the north, German panzers threatened to destroy defenders near Luga and then encircle Leningrad. The Soviet second city had once had whole nations separating it from the invaders. Now, less than 100 kilometers. The Soviet offensive against Army Group Center provided a bright spot. Once an unstoppable juggernaut, the Red Army had managed to blunt it and was now seeing a real success, at least in one major sector. It demonstrated that the Red Army could organize a major offensive, despite everything it had suffered. And in the South, a real crisis looms as over half a million Soviet troops are located in a salient that is weeks away from potentially being encircled. Unfortunately for the Soviets, their successes in the center would become secondary, as a crisis was rapidly developing on the flanks, one which we'll explore in coming episodes.
that's about it for this week. As usual, if you have suggestions, comments, or questions, email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. If you're watching on the platform with ratings, please give it a review. As usual, sources and an animated map are in the description. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.